Welcome to Palestine Deep Dive, uh, where I'm delighted this week to be joined by the new chair of the Balfour Project, Andrew Whitley. Andrew is a former BBC and Financial Times journalist, and he was the New York director of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, which operates in the Palestinian territories, and actually where we first met, I think back in 2005. Uh, and Andrew, amongst many of the other roles he has had, has also been a policy director and chief executive of the Elders. Um, welcome, Andrew. Um, today, I mean, will partly be a bit of a history lesson because there does seem to be remarkably little discussion or focus on Britain's key role in the region and how this country helped reshape boundaries, first around at the time of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and also afterwards, and with Andrew, we'll explore the role played by former British Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary Lord Balfour and the commitment he made in 1917 to a homeland for Jews in Palestine, so long as this did not prejudice the rights of the existing inhabitants. Uh, and back then, those inhabitants constituted 90% of the people who lived in Palestine. And in order to try and understand the present, we have to try and comprehend and learn from the past. Palestine and Jerusalem have been contested and fought over throughout history, but ultimately there can surely only be a long-lasting peace if there are equal rights for all, regardless of religion, in historic Palestine. Uh, my name is Mark Seddon. I was Al Jazeera's UN correspondent, and I've worked for the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and worked for the UN, uh, a UN General Assembly President, Maria Fernanda Espinosa. I've been a long-time journalist, um, taking a great interest in the Middle East, as with Andrew. And what we really would like to hear is from you today. Andrew's here with us. Uh, he's uh, prepared to take your questions. Um, but actually, before, I mean, we're going to look very much at uh, the Balfour Project, what it does. We're going to look at the history of Britain in Palestine and the legacy and Britain's continuing responsibility. Uh, but we're going to begin with a couple of general questions. But before that, um, I'm just going to focus on an issue that, because I know uh, Andrew uh, will have views on this, on an issue that we were focusing on just a couple of days ago with the UN Special Rapporteur uh, for the Occupied Palestinian Territories, Francesca Albanese, and also with his uh, Jerusalem-based lawyer. Uh, and I'm talking about Salah Hamouri. And Salah Hamouri, as many of you will know, is a French... Palestinian human rights defender who for the past 20 years has run foul of various Israeli governments uh, and last month was uh, on a 19-day hunger strike. Now we are we're receiving reports we've seen this on social media I have to say it has yet to be confirmed um, but from some pretty good sources it has to be said that uh, Salah Hamouri uh, is is facing imminent deportation and, uh, and if these reports are to be stood up and believed he is going to be deported extraordinarily for apparently not showing allegiance to the state of Israel. Um, Andrew with all the caveats um, if this is the case is this a first? Just as far as I know Mark and I've been following this issue for quite a long time Israel has deported Palestinians in the past it's been a fairly regular practice 
Uh, you may remember that back in the 1990s, it deported hundreds of them, even thousands at a time, to Lebanon uh, of people who were, in effect, political prisoners, some of whom had been fighting against the occupation, but nevertheless, uh, they were political prisoners. But I cannot recall a case of a human rights defender, someone who is monitoring human rights and whose duty it is to be able to report what he or she sees uh, being deported in this way. I think it's a quite shocking precedent. I mean, again, if, if, if it does prove to be the case that he is being deported and for these reasons, uh, could this conceivably play into the agenda um, that has been been encouraged by some uh, in Israel to extend this uh, this uh, policy of deportations to all those who don't show allegiance to the state of Israel? Well, that, that phrase, lack of allegiance to the state of Israel, is of course associated with the Jewish Power Party, which uh, is now going to be almost certainly part of the new coalition government. And that is a very worrying development that they're already starting, even though they're not yet in office yet. Um, but the attacks on human rights defenders did not begin now. Uh, they've been going on for some time. I'm sure that you've um, been reporting on your own show the designation of six Palestinian human rights organizations as being linked to terrorism and all that uh, has flowed from that um, in terms of trying to stifle their activities. Yes, uh, indeed. And actually, that kind of, sort of moves us on to a couple of the more general questions I wanted to ask you. And um, Andrew, I think if we might just start by looking really at the larger picture of human rights, uh, human rights in the light of the um, Israeli general election and, of course, the return of Benjamin Netanyahu, heading a coalition that, by most accounts, most, most people believe this to be the most extreme right wing in Israel's short history. Um, when we talk about right wing, by the way, uh, this is not uh, ephemeral. This is kind of uh, the actions of many of those involved. Uh, and in particular, I wanted to ask about the appointment of, um, of a formerly convicted extremist, Ben Gavir, as Minister for National Security. And, and what can this, in the context we've just been talking about, uh, Salah Hamouri, but what can this possibly mean? Minister for National Security, uh, this individual, uh, the most extraordinary I, thing. I, I believe his title is Public Security, and what he is going to get, which is something apparently he asked for from Netanyahu, I'm basing this on press reports, is control over the border police. And the border police, as you and others will know, are a paramilitary organization who are often at the forefront of actions in order to be able to put down Palestinian demonstrations or and often have a brutal reputation themselves. So clearly he's looking at them as a force that he will be under his personal command uh, in order to be able to further uh, any repressive actions that the government wants to take when uh, Palestinians get out of line. Well, on that, Andrew, I wonder if you can clarify something for us, because we, you know, shortly after the election, we, we saw the 30,000 strong settler march through Hebron, which was widely regarded by, by, by the international communities being provocative. Uh, there was, a, there was a, a lot of interventions, violent interventions. Uh, and we, we, we have seen video um, reports of uh, Israeli uh, national security Dressed in turquoise hats, purple hats. I mean, does does the does the does the police uh, organisation that he will head uh, also police inside 
not just the borders. I mean, does it police inside uh, the Palestinian territories, places like Hebron? Uh, yes, it does. In fact, the border police are the ones who are usually used at the Holy Esplanade, the Haram al-Sharif, or Temple Mount, as Jews call it, um, in order to be able to control the entry and exit of, of Palestinians there. So they have an important security role to play and are often at the forefront of similar actions. I mean, also in, in, in recent days, we have seen the demolition of the uh, EU-funded school uh, in the West Bank, uh, the, the, because the Israelis claim it's uh, in a military range. Um, the, the, I think there'd been a, a visit of, the, of representatives from the EU the day before it was demolished. So it would appear that despite all of the uh, protestations that have followed uh, the, this, uh, the assembly of this coalition government, um, the international community is really left wondering what to do. Uh, but do you think it, it can be business as usual? I certainly hope that it isn't business as usual, but I suspect that the uh, tolerance of many countries in the international community um, is going to be tested here. Um, it's really hard to see how they could make meaningful actions. They have not shown the appetite to be able to do so until now. Um, certainly, there needs to be further actions to enforce differentiation of goods that are produced in the occupied territories and those within Israel itself, something which is quite sadly lacking. And there needs to be some form of accountability. I think one of the upcoming tests that is going to see exactly where governments stand is going to be after the UN General Assembly votes in the coming days to refer the legal status of the occupation to the International Court of Justice. Um, you, you may know that um, governments in the EU were, were split on, on this matter, but a, um, a minority, a good minority, and did vote in favor of that resolution. Quite a lot of other countries, including the UK, chose to abstain on the matter. But this is procedural at this stage. Uh, once it goes through the General Assembly and gets referred to the ICJ, then in my view, the battle will begin and there will be very heavy lobbying, both from Israel and its supporters and from those who would like to see the principles of accountability and upholding international law uh, really defended by the ICJ. Even though the ICJ is only going to give an advisory opinion, I would say that that advisory opinion certainly matters in legal terms and in moral terms. Well, that's very interesting. And I mean, in recent days, we also have seen Prime Minister Netanyahu trying to indicate to Washington and London and other capitals that uh, he's going to rein back on um, some of these people that he's given jobs to. But uh, the proof will be um, in the pudding, as it were. Um, Andrew, if we could move on. Um, I, I, actually, I, I think it would be quite useful for for people watching and at home, um, if we could if we could begin with your own story, because you've had a very long involvement with Middle East affairs. Uh, we talked about that at the beginning as a journalist, as a senior United Nations official, uh, and more recently using a lifetime's experience to advance a, a greater degree of wisdom and understanding, and with it all the practical necessities required to achieve that. Um, so. I'm just interested. I'm sure many of our viewers will be too. Uh, you know what what it what it was that drew you to the Palestinian issue in the first place. 
I was posted there in 1985, 37 years ago. And for those who want to know my age, that was more than half my life away. Um, two thirds of my, of my professional life, actually, um, to uh, Jerusalem by the FT as their bureau chief there. And it was at a time when um, I didn't know very much personally about the conflict. I came there not rather naively, I suppose, thinking that I could be neutral and even-handed and soon learned that in the face of injustice, you can't be neutral. Uh, I can remember very well one of my first visits to the West Bank, uh, accompanied by a, uh, a Zionist uh, agency uh, official, um, actually showing me a map of the West Bank with existing settlements marked in one color and planned settlements in another. At that time, beyond the Green Line, there were just 50,000 settlers. Today, the, that number is almost 700,000, and virtually all of those planned settlements have been built. Um, certainly, um, the realization of Israel's plans has proceeded very steadily through one government after another. So when one sees what is happening, and I was fortunate as, as a journalist to cover the first intifada, which was quite uh, breath of fresh air, quite frankly, um, to be able to see the degree of organization, particularly women's groups working in support and self-sufficiency groups working to, to live off the land, to literally try and shake off the Israeli controls on their systems. That produced a sense that things could really change and change for the better in a long-term way. But sadly, it didn't prove to be the case. Um, but since then, I returned, as you mentioned, as a UN official based first in Gaza and then in Jerusalem before I moved to New York and was working for the UN uh, Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, um, as their external relations director. And in that capacity, it was my job to try to um, raise the funds that the agency needs. And it really is almost a bottomless pit um, of be able to um, keep the 5.5, almost 6 million now, uh, refugees uh, afloat with their basic services that normally a state would provide, but we had to do it as, as UNRWA. And of course, um, more recently, and in, in President Trump's time, there were major cuts to the UNRWA funding. Um, do, 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 I mean, all of your experience uh, in UNRWA um, and before uh, does it, does it, are you left with the impression that the international community through UNRWA and through other UN agencies and through the EU and other uh, in, international organizations is left really to pick up the tab? Um, and each time there is conflict and horrendous damage and destruction, uh, this is what has to happen. And yet funding is often under pressure. That is very much the case, and uh, there have been a number of persuasive books and essays saying that actually the perpetuation of foreign aid, uh, particularly for the Palestinian Authority, has created a dependency culture which has not been healthy for, for, for Palestinians. But the fact remains that um, the humanita humanitarian aid is absolutely essential because otherwise people would be starving and they would not get the education that they need. They don't wouldn't be given the tools that they need to equip them to be able to stand on their own feet after they, they leave school. Um, you know, I'd like to remind your listeners that it was UNRWA and UNRWA trained um, students 
who formed the backbone of the educated classes in the Gulf countries and thus laid the basis for the later prosperity of those now extremely wealthy countries. And so UNRWA, I think, has a great deal to be thanked for. Yes, indeed. And thanks, Andrew. I mean, we are, we are, I did mention at the beginning, we, we we're going to delve a little bit more into, uh, into history, Britain, particularly Britain's involvement uh, in Palestine uh, and the mandated uh, territory as it was after the Ottoman War. Um, um, and of course, we're going to be very keen to have some of your questions. Um, I know some of you have already been in touch. We'll, we will come to you. But before we start, we do have a very short um, video clip to show you. This is uh, a kind of a little bit of potted history. Uh, it'll save Andrew having to go through it all. Um, but this is Rashid Khalidi uh, uh, really giving his take on um, the colonial period under the British and how Britain um, made promises to the Palestinians that it simply has not kept. Were apologized for their colonial crimes in Palestine. Professor Rashid Khalidi explains how the British violently repressed Palestinians who resisted colonization prior to the official creation of the State of Israel in 1948, and how violent colonial practices shape Israeli policies today. The British employed repressive tactics and carried out all kinds of atrocities against the Palestinians from very soon after they arrived in 1917 right through 1939. The Palestine Mandate established British rule in the territory after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, over 10% of all Palestinian men were killed, wounded, imprisoned or exiled by the British. What the British did in the 1930s especially did turn large parts of the country into prisons. One of my uncles was exiled, one of my uncles was imprisoned in these camps. These methods, imprisonments of, of huge numbers of people, we're not talking about hundreds, we're talking about thousands. The treatment of villagers, where whole villages would be cordoned off and closed, are things that Israel has inherited from the British. The British trialed, tested, and developed methods of counterinsurgency across their colonies, from India to Sudan and Ireland to Palestine, to stamp out rebellion to colonial rule. When the mandate is being set up, the British are using their strategies of counterinsurgency in Ireland, which are ultimately then transferred to Palestine. It's not just a transfer of techniques, it was also a transfer of personnel. The people who are burning down towns, the people who are assassinating Irish revolutionaries are sent to Palestine, essentially to do the same kinds of things. The British brought in over 100,000 troops and were using aerial bombardment. Tea Guard comes in and he builds what are called Arab interrogation centers, which are essentially torture centers. Ord Wingate is brought in, and he creates what are called special night squads, groups that were created to infiltrate areas where Palestinian rebels were thought to be operating and to carry out reprisals against innocent villagers. Wingate did this with soldiers from the British Army as well as selected recruits from the Zionist militias. The violence didn't end when British colonizers left. After the State of Israel's creation by the UN Partition Plan of Palestine, Palestinians faced mass expulsion from their lands and at least 750,000 people became refugees. Zionist forces killed about 15,000 Palestinians in a series of mass atrocities and massacres. Besides training Zionist militias, the British also left behind a series of colonial laws that Israel took over. The most important of the British regulations that were used to suppress the Palestinians were the 1945 emergency regulations. The most important provision of which is the suspension of the 
right to counsel and the possibility of indefinite administrative detention without charge, without trial, which can be renewed every six months. Thousands of Palestinians are imprisoned in Israeli jails, with hundreds, including children, facing administrative detention. From inside and outside of Israel's prisons, the tactics used by Palestinians in their fight for freedom and justice are similar to other independent struggles around the world, where colonial regimes eventually fell. The British need to apologize for a great deal. Palestine is only one arena in which they carried out crimes during the colonial era. Well, I mean, that's fascinating on so many different counts because, I mean, Andrew, you'll recall and, and you'll know that you know that in, in recent years, there's been a big focus on British colonial rule in India, in Kenya, um, in uh, what was uh, southern Rhodesia. Uh, it, I mean, but Palestine's really mentioned. I mean, just there, there's a little, just a little gem just sprung out, Ord Wingate, who, as we know, is most famous for the, his work with the Chindits in uh, Burma against the Japanese. And, and watching that suddenly made me think, well, perhaps some of these tactics that he used so successfully against the Japanese, he had honed in Palestine. I mean, it is, it is quite extraordinary. But, but I mean, it's, it, it's all fascinating. And it brings us on, really, to uh, the role of... Lord Balfour, back in 1917, even before the end of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and, and it's interesting, though, that for many people who are interested in knowing about what the Balfour Project is about, given that you know many Palestinians blame Balfour for much that followed and which finally led to UN partition and the Nakba, can you explain why the project is named after him? And and I suppose the question is, is it because many people don't really appreciate that um, actually Balfour's declaration um, has it's, it's kind of been it's kind of been uh, almost claimed by by Israel as an exclusive preserve, but he made commitments to the Palestinians that simply haven't been carried out. Is is that the explanation behind the name? Um, it would be very interesting, I think, for people to know. You, you've put your finger on exactly the point. I mean, you are right to say that sometimes the name is misunderstood um, as seen by some as being supportive of the cause of, of Zionism. I mean, I should make clear here that the Balfour Project as an organization certainly defends very strongly Israel's right to exist and it wishes that there should be a Palestinian state alongside Israel, if possible, uh, even if that prospect looks increasingly unlikely to happen in practice. But uh, our starting point really is history, and it going, going back to the British role that uh, Rashid Khalidi described so excellently and so eloquently uh, just now. Um, Looking back at the broken promises that Britain made to the Arab peoples, to their contradictory promises to the Arabs and to the Jews, and to their frankly bad faith actions, uh, you yourself referred to the um, lack of knowledge in this country, something which is quite um, surprising actually, considering how central Britain's role was um, for the um, creation of this particular conflict as well as its lack of actions to be able to help realize what its duty was under the League of Nations mandate, a sacred trust of civilizations, as it was called, that Britain had took on, which it failed to honor in order to be able to prepare the Palestinian people for independence in that old, rather paternalistic way that was in the days of the League of Nations. 
Um, so while Britain certainly encouraged and supported the development of representative Israeli institutions, not do the same for the Palestinian side. And we feel that English people need to have their eyes opened and in their name. And what the, the government has failed to acknowledge its own historic uh, mistakes and its own failings to be able to realize a British state, often putting down very brutally, as we saw in that film clip, um, the Palestinian uprisings. Britain can't evade its responsibilities, <clears throat> both from the past and from the present. Let's not forget the fact that Britain is a permanent member, one of the five permanent members of the Security Council, and responsible for drafting and for, for passing many important resolutions, which Israel has frankly ignored. Israel has not been held to account for, for its failure to, to uphold those, those resolutions, and Britain has remained silent on that particular subject. Um, in marked contrast, I should say, with the way that Britain's attitude has been towards the Russian occupation of Ukraine and the uh, commitment of human rights abuses there. Um, well, thank you, Andrew. We, uh, Julie, Mary, we will come to you, your questions, uh, but they're, they're, they're a little bit more general. And uh, the focus just for now is very much on um, the, the history and also... Uh, the present and and particularly with Britain's responsibility. Uh, so we do have a question. This is from Ori Nier. Um, good to see you, Andrew. Uh, question. Beyond the historic dimension, what is it today that puts the UK in a position to play a unique role diplomatically in relation to Israel-Palestine? Well, thank you, Ori. And it's very good to be back in touch with you again. Uh, you've been a brave fighter on this subject for a long time. What Britain can do today, and it's entirely within the government's gift, is to be able to recognize the state of Palestine along the 1967 lines. That will change the equation. If Britain were to join the 130-odd other countries in the General Assembly and some European countries like Sweden and Iceland in recognizing Palestine, preferably, I would add, done together with other European countries so that each country can't be picked off by the, uh, the opponents of such actions, uh, then I think it would change. It would change the equation legally, and it would create a parity of esteem between Israel and the, uh, and, the, and the Palestinians. It would give the Palestinians more tools in order to be able to uh, stand up for themselves and, and for their rights. The other things that I would like to see Britain uh, do and the Balfour project also supports this very much, would be to be able to enforce accountability for crimes against the Palestinian people, not to block UN investigations as the Johnson government did um, with its attempts to be able to uh, prevent it, certainly not to move the embassy from um, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem as former Prime Minister Liz Truss was, was attempting to do, and here I can claim rather modestly that the Balfour Project made a difference behind the scenes in trying to uh, mobilize campaigns uh, to be able to get influential groups in, in the UK to be able to act on, on, on uh, persuading the government to back down. So I, I think there are a series of things. Some of them are quite straightforward, um, upholding differentiation uh, between uh, goods produced in the, in the settlements and goods produced in Israel. Uh, preventing British companies from assisting the occupation in any way, the, uh, 
construction company JCB is one of the big providers of, of equipment that is used in the demolition of, of Palestinian homes, for example. So I think that the, the government needs to live up to the principles that it claims that it, uh, it, it upholds and try and start putting into practice some of the things that it would certainly argue for elsewhere in the world. Andrew, you've told us something about the Balfour project, um, and also uh, to your great credit, to the to the Balfour project's great credit, the the role that uh, you, your supporters and members, have played in in shifting um, a, a, a British government position that uh, was seemingly about to follow that of uh, former President Trump. So that was uh, that was a significant intervention, and shows it is possible to. Uh, intervene and to influence. But what do you think, because I think many people who are um, are concerned about this issue, who are very supportive of the Palestinian cause, uh, not only in Britain, but elsewhere, do feel, and of course, most importantly of all, in the Palestinian territories themselves, that do feel horribly defeated and sometimes completely impotent. Um, Could you just ran through some of the occasions when you know, when governments have voted effectively against the work that they've been historically doing. It makes no sense. So can you tell us a bit more about the project, you know, the, the, the sort of people you, you who are involved? I think that, you know, you're all party and none. Um, tell, tell me about the, the, the project itself. Well, I'd like to first quote our former chair, my predecessor, Sir Vincent Fien, for retired British ambassador, um, served in Jerusalem as the consul general, in effect, the ambassador to the Palestinians. And he has a very measured way of being able to describe the challenge that we face in the rather tough political environment that it is in uh, the UK on this subject. And he says that what the Balfour Project is doing is engaging in a marathon, not in a sprint. We are in this for the long haul. And we do that in a number of ways. We're not trying to just get quick easy victories, nice though those are when they happen, but we realize that we have a long-term job to do of educating the British public, helping trying to get uh, the subject of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict into Britain's schools, into secondary schools, particularly in the senior years of secondary schools. It's quite shocking how most schools prefer to avoid dealing with this subject. Teachers might find it Yet I'm sure that there are many students, many families in this country, particularly those from a Muslim background, who feel that it's very important that this subject be taught, perhaps from the Jewish backgrounds also. We do have quite a number of progressive Jews who are very supportive of, of the Balfour Project. But to give you a flavor of the organization, the kind of people who are associated with it are a mixture of former journalists like myself, former officials, diplomats, um, a few historians, um, a couple of uh, church leaders, our, our, our founders, Roger and Monica Spooner, themselves were uh, professional people, lecturers, who went out to Palestine and had their eyes opened by a visit to the ground and realized that there was a huge lack of knowledge back in Britain and determined to, to set up an organization that would start to try and educate Andrew, we're, we're, lo- we're losing sound with you a little bit. I wonder if you could, uh, it might be a bit better if you can lead forward into the microphone, perhaps that that's, might help. I, I hope you can hear me now. 
That's a lot better. Very good. Sorry about that. So um, we have three planks to our work. One of them is historical, acting as an authoritative historical archive and source uh, for uh, people who are interested in this subject. The second is educational. We have a brilliant program of Peace Fellows, Balfour Project Peace Fellows on university campuses around the uh, UK. There are 15 of them this year, all of whom are really motivated, committed young people. And they come from all backgrounds, Muslim, Jewish, British, non-British. There's an Indonesian in, in the current group. And so th these are people who help in getting the word out on campuses, doing their own projects in groups on different aspects of Britain's role and of aspects of, of the occupation. But then we have the political advocacy side of our work, which we've been talking about, which is um, hard going, to be honest. Uh, you are correct in saying that we are all party and none. We, we have representatives of different parties in a cross-party group that we help to convene. And we also help to support the work of a European group of parliamentarians, the European Parliament's parliamentarians for Israeli-Palestinian equality. Um, equal rights is very much a leitmotif of, of ours, and it's what we think is one of our strongest platforms for advocacy these days. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. I mean, and, um, I, you know, the, the, that certainly that, uh, that degree of uh, influence that helped uh, change the decision about the proposed embassy move is is a is a is a is a great example of what effective behind the scenes work uh, can do but andrew i wonder if we could briefly go back to the balfour declaration itself um because uh, obviously the balfour project takes its name from balfour we've discussed this but the declaration was issued on behalf of the british government in 1917 which was a year before the end of the defeat of the ottoman empire um and this was at a time when General Allenby was leading a campaign against the Turks. And of course, famously, T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia was involved in the Arab rebellions and insurrections. Um, so how did this Balfour Declaration come to pass? Um, and is it the case, I mean, it's, it's, more recently, the, the case has become stronger to, to suggest that T. E. Lawrence was bitterly disappointed uh, that in in what he believed was a terrible betrayal of the Arabs by the British, including in Palestine. Take your uh, viewers back a little bit further in history, Mark. We, we have to go back to the middle of the 19th century because Christian evangelists were very prominent in the Tory party. Lord Shaftesbury was one of the leading figures there. So Balfour was in a, a long line of prominent British politicians who were convinced that the return of the Jews to the Holy Land would fulfill biblical prophecies and would be important in order to be able to, to realize their own faith. So there was a predisposition towards the uh, what became from the end of the 19th century that the Zionist cause of a return to their historic lands um, on the part of the British on the government that is on British elites. Um, and at that time though, in 1917, what is particularly important to recall is the historical context, is that Britain was not certain it was going to win the war. It wanted the support of what it saw as the Jewish lobby, the influential Jewish lobby, particularly in the United States and, and in Britain. 
and it thought that it would actually uh, make a declaration which would stand Britain's interests in good stead in, in the future. Now, you're right in pointing out that actually there were divisions, particularly in the Foreign Office, and there were quite a few officials who felt that Britain was acting in a double-handed and uh, contradictory fashion. This is really summed up in a new book that is coming out from one of my colleagues on the Balfour Project, Peter Shambrook, a historian, who has been writing about what is known as the Makman Hussein correspondence. Makman was in Cairo at the time, and he was in correspondence with uh, Sharif Hussein, uh, the Hashemites and the Hejaz, over promises made to the Arab peoples of what they would be able to get after the end of the war if they were to come in on Britain's side. Uh, unfortunately, they were badly let down, and uh, T.E. Lawrence was correct in his own sense of betrayal, which uh, was shared by quite a number of others. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, I mean, we, we saw Rashid Khalidi's uh, short film, but uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about the British mandate in Palestine from the end of the First World War onwards up until uh, 1948 and partition, because I think, I mean, during that period, there were, there were a lot of localised um, uprising uh, during the 1930s in particular. Um, but also, and, 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 where, and where we've seen that the British forces were used to put down rebellions of by, by Arabs in the Palestinian in, in Palestine, but also it appears that during this period that the, the, the actual there was a nervousness in Britain about um, Jewish immigration into Palestine, because but of course by the end of the Second World War, uh, famously boats of refugees were being turned away to great consternation uh, by the Royal Navy. So what was this? What did it, were the British? What were the British trying to manage a really difficult situation and actually coming down both on Arabs and Jews in that period? Or did they have an eventual did they have an eventual game plan end, you know, when this mandate was to come to an end? Did they were they pressurizing for the for the partition? As I know there's a whole bunch of questions in there, but I mean if you if you're able to throw some light onto the British mandate and what the plan and how what the plan really was and how it led to partition, that would be very useful, I think. Um, British policy flopped. While there was consistently a predisposition towards the, the Jewish cause, and there is plenty of evidence that um, Jews were favoured, uh, perhaps um, given uh, weapons, according to some sources, um, or allowed to acquire weapons, um, and uh, there was very little done to be able to try to control or to um, act against, um, let me correct myself here, uh, at, a, at a time when some of the uh, Jewish terrorist organizations, um, the Stern Gang, the Irgun and others, um, were active, uh, British forces were actually um, being attacked themselves and found themselves in uh, in a very difficult situation. You may remember the famous bombing of the King David Hotel in, in Jerusalem, which resulted in well over 100 people being killed at that time. And that was a huge shock to the, the British administration there. But it's true that the general picture is one of Britain struggling to be able to deal with contrary pressures from the Palestinian side and from Jews who were fleeing from, from Europe. Um, 
Israel had the excuse me the the pre-Jewish state the the Yishuv had been very successful in being able to uh, promote uh, Aliyah as it's called the return to the Holy Land uh, over several generations starting in the late 1890s and the numbers were rising during British times and this was creating resentment locally. They were buying Palestinian lands, often lands of absentee properties, but the Palestinian landless farmers found themselves in an extremely difficult economic situation. And so there was little that Britain could do. There was considerable amount of, of hunger. Um, perhaps they should have, could have done more to be able to, to assist them. So I think when it came to the end, um, Britain had tried, particularly through the, the Peel Commission, one of the important investigations into uh, what British policy should be and how to deal with these, these how to reconcile the, these different questions. But none of them were acceptable to one side or, or the other. Finally, after the, the Second World War was over, uh, the, the new Labour government found itself in a position where it simply wanted to wash its hands of the issue. And it chose to be able to refer the issue in 1947 to the United Nations, effectively saying, we can't do anything more about this. We have to leave it to you. And Britain actually didn't choose to, to vote in the early resolutions in the General Assembly. To, it recused itself in order to be able to in the appearance of, of neutrality on, on the matter. But um, the, the history books tell us that uh, the uh, Zionist uh, envoys were extremely successful in doing their lobbying in order to promote the famous partition resolution in 181. And that then British We're slightly losing you again, Andrew, sorry. I said that after Resolution 181, the, the famous partition resolution, which then led on to fighting and to the start of the forced departure of Palestinian families from their homes, um, which began at the end of 1947 and then gathered pace during 1948. And in the end, Britain walked away and it, the closing scenes of British troops leaving from Haifa Harbor uh, show the, the the presence of Jewish representatives, but nobody at all from the Palestinian side. That was quite a telling moment. And and fast forwarding before we go to some of the um, the questions, people will be very patiently waiting to to have answered. I mean, stepping forward, uh, looking towards the Six Day War in 1967, the occupation of the remaining Palestinian territories, those that have been defined um, by at partition as being Palestinian territory and of course the Golan and then of course what you were saying at the beginning Andrew about looking at those maps of illegal settlements that have grown from uh, tens of thousands to 700 800,000 uh, people settlers now in in Palestinian territories um what we have are a few sort of cantonments I suppose of Palestinian administered areas but really it's apparent that that Balfour Declaration, um, the partition and the wars have actually left the Palestinians in control of just a, a minute proportion of their former homelands. Um, where, where, you know, where does this end? Do you think? Big, big question. How, how does it? How does it end? 
Well, as I said earlier, very sadly, I have to say that um, it looks highly likely that the long um, hoped for two-state solution um, is probably on its last legs if it not has already reached its uh, its end. Um, I think it's probably virtually impossible to imagine that there will be uh, an Israeli withdrawal of the settlers and the breaking up of the infrastructure that they have built at cost of, of billions of pounds or dollars um, in a way that will allow what the UN calls the emergence of a viable, sovereign, and contiguous Palestinian state. All those three words are important. And at a time when Israeli policies are apparently, as far as I can tell, deliberately aimed at fragmenting the Palestinian population who live under different legal regimes in different parts of their historic homeland, whether it's East Jerusalem or the West Bank or Gaza or in Israel proper, pre-1967 pre Israel, um, the Palestinians are divided. They have um, their own internal difficulties, which are serious, and some of which have been fermented by um, the outside, uh, setting impossibly high bars for them to be able to, to meet. Um, and I think that the, the prospect of a state along the traditional lines that have been previously envisaged is now almost impossible to imagine. At the same time, though, Policymakers, particularly in the West, are reluctant to draw the conclusions that it's time to look for alternatives because they will not wish to pressure Israel into changing or losing its Jewish character and accepting the emergence of a single democratic state, as some people would advocate for. Yes. Well, part of Mary uh, Mary's question has possibly been answered. Ma Mary in Southport um, asked, you know, given your wealth of experience, and your and breadth of your career, um, what did you feel about the current trajectory? Well, you've, you've been talking about that. Uh, but she says, uh, what is needed today? A new peace process and talk, or perhaps the different direction you were talking about altogether, and the pursuit of equal rights for Palestinians to dismantle Israel's apartheid for good. Is that the way to push ahead? Equal rights. I would answer in several different ways. Some things which are quite straightforward and simple, but are based on principles and British values. And I would say these would be ensuring accountability, ensuring that the exceptionalism that Israel has historically enjoyed, uh, being able to get away with actions which in any other context uh, would be roundly condemned by the, the international community and would actually result in sanctions of different forms. Um, there has not been any. And it's not just me, but also some of the respected Jewish figures who I think you know, have been very courageous indeed, who argue that only is, the only thing that Israel will accept is force. And I don't mean military force here. Let me be very clear about this. I, I mean, actually, actions that are going to compel it something's firm which is going to compel it to actually change direction that it only recognizes that something which has really changed its calculations over whether it can get away with things and continue with business as normal or not thank you um, and julie in london asks uh, what are your thoughts andrew on the current state of unra are you optimistic it will survive despite the cuts in funding 
Um, and can it continue to support Palestinians indefinitely? This is a real dilemma. I mean, UNRWA is in a worse, much worse situation today than it was at the time that I left it over 10 years ago. Um, numbers have, have grown and the funding proportionately has been cut. I mean, in the case of the UK, they've cut their funding by almost 70% to, to, to UNRWA. It used to be the third largest donor. The US has restored some of its past funding, but no, nowhere near what it used to do. And even more depressingly, uh, the wealthy Arab states, who are certainly in a position to be able to help, are not giving anything at all, or hardly anything at all. Um, I was shocked to hear the other day that the UAE, for example, echoing Israel in, its one, in one of its key demands, is saying, we'll only help if um, you, UNRWA, start to make plans for winding yourself up. And Wow. Coming from a major Arab state, which ought to be giving unstinted support to its Arab brothers, I think is really quite disturbing. Yes. And you, UNRWA is you, you, in a difficult state to, yeah. today, and it's not just for the usual financial reasons of the past, but there are also fresh challenges coming to it um, over its mandate. Um, over claims that it perpetuates the uh, the refugee question, which is simply not the case. A close examination of um, international conventions shows that UNRWA simply follows the same practice as UNHCR does with any other refugee. But it's facing really difficult choices. It's stuck between a rock and a hard place because the refugee host countries, in particular Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, refuse to take any of the responsibilities which they say are the cost of are the responsibility of the international community so they won't take on the, the tasks and the donors say well our ability to help particularly at a time when we're dealing with the consequences of covid around the world we're dealing with the ukraine crisis etc uh, is not unlimited so i'm afraid that unrwa is facing a really existentialist challenge and with that goes the well-being of about six million people these days. Uh, we've got time, I think, for two or three more questions, uh, if that's all right, Andrew. Um, Zane in Manchester asks, uh, what do you feel, Andrew, uh, that a progressive party's foreign policy on Palestine should look like? Um, in addition to, because you have talked about a lot of this, but in, a, in addition to recognizing Palestine, should all arms sales to Israel be immediately halted, for instance? Should there be sanctions? And also, but briefly, I, I may throw in, as we know, there's a lot of government pressure around the boycott and divest and sanctions campaign. And you've been talking specifically about sanctioning those companies operating in the occupied Palestinian territories. But what about that, too? That is a policy which is being pushed back on by various governments, including in Germany and in Britain. Well, I, I thank Zane for her question. And I think that um, we need to uh, campaign against a new bill, which has long been threatened, um, which has come under the authorship of Michael Gove, I believe, uh, which is aimed at preventing public bodies in the UK from taking ethical decisions that are contrary to uh, British foreign policy, the foreign policy of the government of, of the day. So in effect, any government of the day is giving itself the ability to be able to and powers to be able to tell mm. local authorities whether it's a pension fund or, or or other institutions what they should be doing with their money 
if this is applied in the Palestinian case, it will equally apply on other matters such as the arms trade or on uh, climate change, for example, if it happens to disagree with, with, with the government. So I think that this is a major challenge to the liberties of, of British people, which any new government, and I would certainly hope that the Labour government, a new Labour government, excuse me, uh, under Keir Starmer, would would roundly reject and would challenge. But I'm afraid that the that the Labour Party has been a little timorous on this subject. I mean, clearly uh, rather afraid of being tarred with with anti-Semitism charges, quite unfairly, I think. Um, so a, a progressive policy ought to put human rights back to the center of British policy, upholding international institutions, upholding international law, and making sure that others do it as well. I mean, I will find that um, Britain, as one of the signatories to the Geneva Conventions, has a duty to be able to uphold the the, Geneva, the fourth Geneva Convention on, on occupation and working with others in order to bring about a meeting of the parties to the Geneva Convention in order to be able to say, what's going wrong? Why is it that in the case of the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories, that there is so little concern or, or regard for what is an international duty? Um, I think we possibly we've got time for just one more question because we are we're really really running up against it and we, we've had you we've taken up a lot of your time this evening, Andrew. But, but this is a question from Sama in Bradford, um, and Sama asks: uh, Many Palestinians have long argued that this is not a conflict but a settler colonial war waged against the Palestinians by the Zionist movement. Should we not be dropping terms like conflict and use new language, which more accurately describes the situation on the ground today? And if that is the case, what sort of language perhaps should be, be being used? Well, language comes in fashion, and the, the settler colonialism narrative is, is gaining traction these days as being a more accurate conceptual way of being able to describe it. I mean, certainly it is a conflict in plain English. There is a conflict that is going on and that has had different manifestations, different forms to it. Sorry, we've yeah. lost you there, Andrew. Uh, can, can you hear me now? That's a bit better, yeah. Okay, sorry about that. Um, so, you know, I'm acknowledging that indeed uh, there has been a movement and that many uh, of today's Israelis you know, came from abroad. But I don't want to suggest here that by taking that term that we are delegitimizing Israel or Israelis or suggesting that they didn't have historical connections to this land. They did. and They are entitled to live there. The issue is, can they live peacefully alongside the population who they found when they started arriving them? Thank you. Uh, Ty Ebright says, uh, she says, from the river to the sea, equal rights for you and me. I think that probably sums up so much of what uh, you're about, Andrew, have been about for so very long, and also what the Balfour Project is all about. So for all of those of you who've been watching, listening this evening, who want to get in touch, find out more, perhaps get involved with what the Balfour Project is doing, please go to their website. Um, there's plenty of information there. 
uh, we've been absolutely delighted to be able to host you this evening, Andrew. It's been a it's been an extraordinary a trip through history, um, and uh, and also a, a good explainer, an educational explainer for why Britain has had a particular responsibility for what has happened and what is continuing to happen. Um, and so, uh, you know, anything that um, anybody watching can do today and perhaps going to see their member of parliament on over the boycott and divestment and sanctions issue is really worthwhile doing. So um, without more ado, we should say adio and thank you very much indeed, Andrew, for joining us. We hope you'll join us again from all of us here at Palestine Deep Dive, from Omar, Alex and Ahmed and the team. Um, thank you for all that you do. Good luck with everything the Balfour Project is doing. We'll keep in touch and we'll hopefully have you back on again soon. Many thanks. It was really my pleasure. Thank you, Andrew.